Let us pray. Father God, we need you to be present with us in this moment as we look to your word. We have nothing to commend in ourselves as we look to it, Lord. We need you to provide for us ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that believe upon you and trust in you. Give us a richer and more deep understanding this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's on a misprint in your bulletin. There, there was Romans there, but it's actually providential. My brother didn't read it because I spent enough time in the first four verses of Habakkuk today that that's an okay place to be. We gather here on Reformation Sunday, and if I were to ask you, and I'm going to ask you, who is the forefather of the Reformation? Who would you say that it is? Luther. And I would normally say Luther as well. And yet I, I noted this week, I actually read a little snippet from the Reformation Study Bible. It's probably the most well-known study Bible of the Reformed Church. It's out of Legionnaire Ministries. R.C. Sproul saw, it, um, saw over it during his lifetime. And it pointed out the following. It pointed out the fact that Habakkuk was actually the forefather of the Reformation. Because Habakkuk lived in a day where there was chaos and godlessness within the church, chaos and godlessness within the political landscape of the place that he lived, and he struggled with this. And as we have seen in his prayer journal, he struggled and wrestled with this and came to God. And and even at the beginnings of our passage today, he is just, in one sense, frozen in place, looking for God to give more detail, to give more of his word so that he might better understand what God has resolved to do. And it was that individual writing down these words that the righteous shall live by faith that the Apostle Paul picks up on in the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 17, as he was writing in a time of great and dramatic change within the landscape of the church and in a, the heart of essentially a godless society of Rome. And so what the study Bible was pointing out that it was basically the domino effect of the fact that we needed Habakkuk to write it down for the Apostle Paul to write it down, for eventually a German monk to take this verse in his own day of a godless church in a corrupt political society and to see the wisdom of what's being said here. And yet, far be it from me to disagree with probably the most well-known study Bible. I'm sure there's a couple copies within our congregation but actually, I thought about it some more, and actually, they're only half right. Because the words that Habakkuk recorded are actually uttered by God. 
And so it's actually the domino effect of God being the reformer of all reformers. And that pattern through the ages when people and societies get at a critical mass and the church laments at the decay of society, at the godlessness that arises within the church, it's this message, as we will see, that sparks the soul and blesses us with a deeper, renewed understanding of the goodness of our God. You know, it's, there is this reality where, you know, every 10 decades, the Pew Research Group does a canvas of the world stage and of Christianity at large in the world. In the year of our Lord, Lord 2022, every major denomination, every, that does not take the words of this passage seriously, and it's the fullness of its implications, is shrinking in our day. It is shrinking. You know, I always, I tend to comment on coming in as an outsider, and I'm so thankful that the Padres lost to the Phillies, because I, I really would have been a a true outsider, even a greater outsider here within the congregation. But as an outsider coming to the Northeast, the amazing thing about the Northeast is that the infrastructure is here. The churches are here. The buildings surround us, and yet they lie empty. They lie empty, and they lie empty in what the Pew Research sees because the church, the people of the church, believe themselves to be wiser than God. They say to this verse, they say to the reality that the righteous shall live by faith, they say, oh, that's just hogwash. That won't bring people in. Let's get a focus group. You know, let's do a Bible survey. Let's do something like that. You know, something productive. And they don't understand that and hopefully we will better understand after looking at the passage today, this has to be the core of us. This has to be at the heart of us, that we are a people living by faith. And every denomination, I don't care if it's Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or mainline Protestantism that says this isn't that important, they are shriveling up in numbers at this moment. They are dying. But the righteous, shall live by faith. So we return to Habakkuk this morning, remembering the complaint of the prophet in the chapter preceding this one. Judah had fallen into the state of godlessness, and Habakkuk had been faithfully praying for God to reform the society from within. And God responded to Habakkuk's request saying, good news, I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe if I told it all to you. I'm going to allow Babylon to destroy Judah, and through that, the problem will begin to be fixed. And Habakkuk, in hearing this message, as we covered last time we were in the text, said essentially, that doesn't seem like a solution. And you might remember there was that imagery we saw at the end of chapter 1, and it was of Habakkuk just complaining of the fact that these leaders, these evil, wicked leaders, just keep casting their nets and reeling in 
people who will not account for God and throw them to the side and cast them to death and cast their nets again and throw them to the side. And it just seems like this circular cycle that is never ending. Uh, people just succumbing to evil over and over again. This is the problem, the dilemma that the prophet sees. And Habakkuk says this is hard. This is hard to understand. And yet he closes, and then we see this in chapter 2 in the first verse by saying, God, I, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to look to you and I'm going to wait for your word. I'm going to wait for your word to, for you to further explain that which I'm struggling to believe. As a pastor, I know the hard truth. I've had enough private conversations with individuals I know, but also I know the struggles of my own heart. There are things in God's word we don't like to hear. There are things in God's word that make us uncomfortable and we do not want to believe. And Habakkuk is actually, in one sense, a representative in this moment of the noble watchman. He doesn't like what he's heard, but he's waiting on God to give further clarity. He's almost a Ricky Ricardo in one sense. God, you're going to have to explain this more to me. Got some explaining to do, explaining to do, as I guess I should say, if I'm really going to commit to it. And I know a great many of us have a flood of testimonies where God has had those moments where you go, God, you, you have to explain this to me. I can't understand where we felt that way. God, why? Why have you done this? Why have you allowed for this to happen? Why have you allowed for this to befall me? And so it shouldn't surprise us all that much that Habakkuk is having a similar moment. We don't like some of God's answers. We don't like some of how God has arranged history, as God has set the course of our lives. And, he, and Habakkuk is no different. He is struggling with this reality. Habakkuk, in one sense, is saying, God, I don't like the judgment that lays in store for my countrymen. I mean, think about this. This would have been family members. This would have been friends. This would have been people he had ministered to, and he has seen that Babylon is going to destroy it. And he's saying, God, I don't like it. I don't like this judgment I've seen, and I don't like that the evil continue to prosper in the key, and evil continues to draw people in. I don't like it. And then he's the faithful watchman because he doesn't turn from God. You know, the buzzword cancel culture is one I use probably too often up here, but I'm going to use it in another way one more time. We Protestants are great at cancel culture. And yet the cancel culture we embrace is, I don't like a God who says that. I don't like a God who tells me this. And so I'm going to find something that will satisfy the God I want to exist. And we cancel the truth of God's word by deciding, you know, you want, maybe you want the homosexual affirming God or the abortion affirming God. You know, you do know the scriptures that God says before you were in your mother's womb, he knitted you together. He conceived of the thought of you, but 
you know, you really want abortion. What you're doing is canceling God. You have embraced cancel culture of the worst kind. You've canceled God's word. And I know it's hard truth, but that's a truth. I don't have people that really have ever tried to biblically argue for me that the going into the womb, as John Calvin said, of the most sacred of all places, the knitting together of a child, going into the womb, that that is a human right to destroy the life that God is bringing together. I also have never had people bring me a biblical argument that says, the God who created marriage and defined marriage gets to be redefined by humanity. You can't do that with Scripture. You have to cancel God in order to do that. The beautiful thing about Habakkuk is he has a living faith because he's heard something he doesn't like, and he doesn't say, so I don't like you, God. I'm going to turn and look to the world, and whatever they say, I'm going to embrace. He says, God, this is hard. This is hard. I don't want to believe this, but you're going to have to just explain it more to me. I still have faith in you. I know that you have an ultimate plan here. I still ultimately will put my trust in you. And anything short of that is cancel culture towards God and his clear word. That's the road that Habakkuk takes. And that's a road that I wish more Christians would take. And yet the road that so many Christians take is they just create a God of their own desire. And an effective way to get more people here, I'm so thankful for all that was said. But you know a better way to get people here? Get a pastor here who will sanitize it. Get a pastor here who won't tell you this. Get a pastor here who's wise enough to skip over those passages. Then the world will say, Oh, you're so progressive. Nothing's hard here. It's always uplifting. There's never these hard moments. You'll fill the sanctuary. Yet you won't stand firm. You won't actually wait for the word of God to speak into your life. You know, and then there's a sense that well, you might be tempted to say, well, my politics aligned, da 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 Every time we sin, every time we sin, every time we know the right thing to do, and yet the old man in us gets the better of us, and we do that which we should not be done, we have canceled out the Word of God. We are guilty of that very thing. And so Habakkuk, is a man of deep conviction. And look at this. Look at the beauty of verse 2. The Lord doesn't disappoint Habakkuk in his waiting. Even though Habakkuk didn't like the word of God and what he heard, God will bless his faithful waiting. And he answers Habakkuk by first saying to him, write the vision. Write what I'm about to say on tablets so that he who reads it may run. Now, a few things need to be pointed out first and foremost. First of all, if you're asked to write something down, what is the expectation? 
you're going to need it in the future. You know, I've, I have a couple of people who take notes here. So like my wife's taking notes right now. This morning, I had hot chocolate. All week long, I've had this bug assault gun zapper that I've been trying to kill the flies in the property with. I'm not wearing socks right now, but that's pretty standard fare. Are you writing this stuff down, honey? It's not good for future use. It's not good for future use. Forget it. God's telling Habakkuk, write this down for future generations. That's why we have it in the Word of God. But lest we just say, well, it's in the Word of God. All the Word of God is important. God then follows it up with a second statement. In the Hebrew, faith, to repeat something, to say something a second time, is to put an exclamation point behind it. And how does he put the exclamation point behind it? He says, write it on tablets. Now, if I'm an Old Testament Jew, and I'm thinking about tablets, what tablets am I thinking about? The commandments in the ark. By the way, the commandments are still in the ark at this moment. 20 years from now, Babylon will take the commandments and break them and destroy them, and they're in the dustbin of history. We don't know where they are. And God is, in one sense, preparing them for that time and saying, take this as a tablet. Chisel out what I'm about to say to you and put it at the core of your faith. Going back to the Pew Report point earlier, the reason why those churches are growing is because we have the essential tablet of the faith, the core tenant in times of trial, in times of hardship. More on that in a moment. And then what will these tablets accomplish? What was Habakkuk's posture before God started speaking? He was, in one sense, immobilized. What will these tablets produce? A prophet, a person who is able to run. A person who is able to run in faith, run a race, proclaim this good news. So God is telling Habakkuk, what I'm about to tell you is important enough to be a new key tablet of truth for my people. And the purpose in what I'm about to tell you is that in hearing it, it will teach you in one sense how to run the race that God has set before you. God has put you in a situation with a failing, the churches failing around you and society crumbling. Well, good news. What he's about to tell you will help you run that race. But then verse 3 continues on with explaining more of what the prophet is about to write down. The fullness of this vision Habakkuk will receive awaits a specially appointed time. It is specific. Things will change in such a way where the people of God will better understand what this tablet means, that God is asking for his prophet to write. Now, in the Hebrew, in verse 3, it is nothing short of amazing. Actually, throughout all our verses in the Hebrew today, it is incredible. But this verse in particular stands out as especially odd. There is a collision of Hebrew here where the collision is essentially the infinite will 
and collide with the finite. Let me look at my notes so I can better explain that as that's even confusing as I say it. The vision in the word selection is a vision that blends that which is eternal with which that is defined in a limited way. John Calvin said of the Hebrew in this verse that this vision of Habakkuk from a human standpoint is trying to say in one sense, while God might seem slow to act, that in our finite understanding, uh, we go, God, you're not acting soon enough. That essentially, when we have the full implications of God colliding with humanity, we'll say about God's sovereign plan, he did everything perfectly. He aligned everything with infinite wisdom. That how dare we ever have questioned him? And so there is a quick personal application point within this odd blend of the finitude colliding with the infinite as Habakkuk records it, and it's this. We all have hardships. We all have sorrows. We all have griefs and changes that occur in our lives in which we disapprove of God's timing. We want God to act, and in our finitude, we ignorantly say, God, what are you doing, and why are you ignoring me? And yet there is an aspect to this vision where we are being told from God's perspective, his timing will always be vindicated. But there is something I find even more remarkable about this verse, and it actually comes to us from the Greek translation, the Septuagint. And the Septuagint comes to us around the time of Alexander the Great, 300 years roughly before the incarnation of Christ. And actually the Septuagint translation of this will influence the Apostle Paul, because he also preached Hebrews. The Apostle Paul, when he uses this verse three times in the New Testament, in Galatians, in Hebrews, and in Romans. Sorry, Rob, to bug you. And it's this. In the Greek Septuagint, the word for vision is a feminine word. And, and you could write it in a neutral form. You can write it in a neuter form. They could have written this verse in the Septuagint in a way that basically said that in this vision of God, that here, let me get the translation out that was worked on, that in this vision of God, that it will tarry, but you should wait for it. And it would have been nice and general, nice and broad. But instead, as Hebrew scholars and scribes wrote the Septuagint in the Greek, and by the way, the Septuagint is sometimes quoted in your New Testament directly, they decided to write the following. They decided to remove the feminine word for vision, and they put the word he. They inserted a he, and it actually reads, if he tarries, wait for him. Another way to put it, if the infinite man seems to take too long to fulfill all that you've been waiting for, continue to wait for him in your finite life. He's the infinite man, and he has ordered things in this world in a way that is perfect and good. And it is then 
In verse 4, after that preamble of verses 2 and 3, God is ready to answer several questions that Habakkuk has asked back in chapter 1, such as, why are you silent, God, when the wicked swallow up the righteous? And how do you get people to care about your law who just continue to ignore it? And God responds to his prophet's complaint in verse 4 by essentially stating Habakkuk, there are ultimately only two ways someone can live. The first, as the ESV puts it, is as one puffed up. Now I'm going to gross you out for a moment here. Because what do you think would puffed up, right? Think of like Bryce Harper when he's hitting homers against Padres. It's like doing this stuff, you know, he's puffed up. He's being a showboat. That's not really the translation. Actually, both the NIV translators and the Net Bible translators were key to point out, while they didn't want to put it into their translation, the puffed up here is sort of like of a boil that has pus on it. Actually, the Net Bible says, really, it's almost like hemorrhoids. Sorry. And so what the Hebrew is trying to say is, what God is saying to Habakkuk, there's one way to live in the world where people come around and they carry, think of leprosy, or they carry, I, teenage years are so bad. They're so awful. Uh, I hated, I, I remember getting zits that just like mortified me and I didn't want to go to school. Eventually it, it clears up a little bit, kids. But, These people, in one sense, don't care. They learn to be happy in their sin. They learn to be happy being pus-covered and boil-covered. And actually, there's an implication here because it's a reference to a larger community. In one sense, they get so haughty when it comes to God that instead of looking to God's law, they just kind of change the word of God around to justify the goodness of their evil and zits in one sense. The goodness of the zits. That's one way to live. That's in the underlying Hebrew there. They just rather continue living and establish a society in the, of people who collectively live in an awful, pus-filled tumor of a society. So it's not fun, right? I think people are not going to want to eat downstairs. That's an illustration of the first group of individuals in verse 4. And bear with me a little while longer. This individual is ultimately what I'm saying is, God considers them not upright because the individual embraces their sin and desires to change it not, desires to deal with it not. They identify with it. They say the puffed up zit is good, even justifying it. And they, in their own judgment and their own self-judgments that ignore the word of God, they say, hey, I'm good. You can't say anything about it. They convince themselves, and while they claim to be wise, they become a tumor-covered fool who refuses to treat the problem that is the plague upon society at the great physician. And it's interesting because 
If we were then to say, okay, who's this other group of people? I'm sure we would think that, okay, if the first people won't deal with that, well, the second person's like the person that will deal with the, per the problem. They'll deal with the pus-filled tumor. But that's not actually the idea God gives Habakkuk. God actually doesn't really talk about the tumor for the righteous. He doesn't really bring it up, and it's not emphasized. He, rather, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And whose faith? Whose faith is in the passage? His faith. Notice it doesn't say the righteous will have to have faith sometimes, or the, they'll start in faith, but eventually that faith will graduate to them being doing the works of popping zits or what have you. Do you continue in that imagery? No, the righteous will in this life always need to rely on faith, and not just any faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Well, who is him? Well, remember the Septuagint reading, where the vision was of a specific man who would come, blending the infinite plan of God with finite reality, with mortality itself. Whoever the Septuagint was talking about must be that individual. And that is why the Hebrew and the Septuagint translation is that translation that carries over into the New Tes Testament. And so someone else's faith will bring about this righteousness that Habakkuk has desired in, within the society. So that faith is established with the crashing together of God's infinite plan with finite humanity, and it will produce a righteous remnant. And then that faith is not just without its byproducts. It will produce faithfulness within the individual. It will produce a faithfulness that responds. Remember the complaint of Habakkuk at the beginning of the first chapter. People just didn't care about the law of God. The faithful one, this infinite one who would come in faith when we, through his faithfulness to us, we will then want to respond with a faithfulness of our own. And this is why God wanted Habakkuk to write this down in his word and to make it a tablet for his people. Yes, there are two types of people, and neither type of individual can save themselves by their own works. One puffed-up group learns to ultimately love their evil, and they end up making their own rules and laws that do not follow God's rules and laws, that do not follow his writings, and they satisfy their own desires, and they ultimately find for a short little while peace in living in utter rebellion to God, faithfully believing their godless way and godless principles are better than God's ways. And they more and more convince themselves of this idea. And then there's a second kind of people that they too, by implication, can't do anything to save themselves individually. They have to rest on whoever this vision is. They too have sins and evil and wickedness, and yet because God is faithful, he will do a work in them that will, and through his own coming, that will establish his righteous 
his righteous in faithfulness to both him and his words, and in so being established, it will allow them to run the race of faith that God has prepared them to run. It will mean that, for instance, when Habakkuk was standing around saying, God, I don't know what to do with this. He didn't go looking for the world. He had a faith that came from God's faithfulness, and so he awaited upon the word of God. So Habakkuk has received nothing short of the promise of that one day a faithfulness would come to pass on this world to firmly establish the righteous people of God. It would be a faith sufficient to save them because it would be a faithfulness that would begin through the work of God. And through that work of God, it would begin to be to make those whom followed God's faithful plan faithful themselves. A new inaugurated reality and world would come, a reality beyond just the tablets of the law contained in the Ark of the Covenants that people gave little regard to. God's righteousness would be revealed in such a way that even though a great destruction over the lion that is Judah would come, somehow through that destruction, through the breaking down of that favored Judah, rising from that would be a salvation that would change the world. And of course, in this, we can see the goodness of our God, because he has done this in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how do you know if you're one of the righteous who finds himself within saving faith? It's rather simple. Have you found the utter joy and peace that it is to abandon your self-righteousness in the treadmill of trying to save yourself through your own works and just abandon yourselves into the arms of the Savior who says, my grace is sufficient for you and perfected in weakness. Have you noticed the zit, the boils, the puffed up pus in our lives, the sins? Do you still struggle with these things and yet you still take these things and bring them to God? And you rest in him alone for your hope and your salvation. Do you resist the temptation to to be relevant in the public square? To be on the right side of all history in rejecting his story? Do you resist that temptation in order to faithfully walk in his commandments and his ways? The reality is you know if you know. You know if you know. You know if you have this kind of intimate relationship with the Lord. And you know if you don't. You know if you've been holding back. You know if you've been saying, God, I'll give you this much, but I'm not going to let you touch these areas. We live in a world that loves its sin, that doesn't want you to call it sin, doesn't want you to recognize it. And that, and unfortunately, sometimes that's us in the mirror. And yet, if we just bring it to him in faith, this one who was promised 
to make set things right, set the world right. We can find healing. We find grace. We can find mercy. We can find joy. It's life-changing. It changed Habakkuk. It changed the Apostle Paul. It changed Martin Luther. It can change us today. It's true. It does remarkable things as we share this message with others. And so let us then be a people, a faithful people, believing upon the Word of God, even when it's hard to, to not turn to false idols, to not turn to false gods, but to wait on Him and His Word and to trust in that for our hope and our salvation. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we so often desire to abandon you. And so we thank you that we know that true faith comes from you, that you will not abandon us, that you are the God who refuses to let us go. And so let us continue to be reminded of that truth, even at now as we prepare to take a moment to confess our sins this past week. Let us remember that our hope and our salvation is found in the Lion of Judah, who was put upon a cross and allowed to die for our sins and for our sake, so that we might faithfully live in him in righteousness. Amen.